says tech can't be human? I've done this a lot. I mean, if I had to say that I had a specialty that forced upon me by the Marine Corps, it was that. It was going over to peers and telling them that this is something that's good. But bringing my red team in and letting them poke around, letting my blue team plug in to their network from some strange IP that they've never seen before is a good thing. Welcome to the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. In the studio today, we brought with us Ben Opal. Ben is Director of Professional Services, also a purple teaming expert. We're going to jump into all of that. But Ben, most importantly, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, gents. Making me feel like a big deal here being on. So uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> Huge deal. Of course, we we are super excited to have this chat with you. First, we got to touch on something that we have in common, both United States Marines. You went to the Naval Academy. Obviously, you had to do something really, really special in order to become a Marine via that avenue. Is there anything from that time that you really took with you into cybersecurity to become leader for the professional services organization? Yeah, do what you can, what you have right now. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> We've had so little for so long, we can now do anything with nothing kind mm. of mentality. That's what right. it was. Yeah, pretty much that. And is there a, a moment in your Marine Corps career that really like encapsulated that and just like sends that point home in your mind? I mean, my background in the Marine Corps has pretty much been show up where there's nothing and make something. So, I mean, that really has been not so much my experience at Attack IQ, but again, at a startup like this, it's there's not always something there to build on. Showing up and having the freedom, but also the, you know, the freedom, kind of like a double meaning, you know, living in interesting times. That really did show me a lot about how to just get going, to have an, have an idea that seems good enough and run. Love it. And I got to ask, I hear so many different stories, whether it be from Chris or other guests about what was their involvement in the military? How did it relate to cybersecurity? You were just touching on that a bit, but I would love to learn a bit about like, did you do cybersecurity in the military? And also what made you go into the cybersecurity field after leaving the military if you did do it in the military? Yeah. So, I mean, I got into the cyber stuff at the academy in college, like lowercase c college, but it was when I took my first, my advanced IA class back when they called it information assurance for all things cyber. Dr. Angela Renninger, on loan from NSA, who had apparently helped write their secure OS, so she was obscenely smart. She's the one who got me to write my first buffer overflow. I was like, wow, mm. this is actually really cool because I've always wanted to know how you make computers do stuff they're not supposed to do. That's kind of when I got hooked. But I also knew that I wanted to go in the Marine Corps for various reasons. I went through a lot of different <laughs> decisions on what I wanted to be when I grew up and graduated. Initially, I wanted to be a doctor, but I'm like, man, healing or killing? I don't know. What am I going to do? <laughs> Ended up in the Marine Corps as a comm officer. So like for anybody who's listening, it's like signals, IT, radio, all that kind of stuff. Headed out to Afghanistan, realized that it's not all that fun just putting things together that inevitably fall apart all the time. And came back, saw the opportunity for a spot at Marfor Cyber, ended up there. Getting to that point was kind of like a dream come true because being a comm officer was the most thankless job in the world. Anybody who works in IT understands exactly what that's like. At least being in cyber, nobody knew what we were supposed to do. So they couldn't really <laughs> fault us. But yeah, ended up going out to build what's called a cyber protection team down at Fort Bragg at the Joint Special Operations Command. Probably the coolest job I've ever had. Some of the most eminently competent people I have been able to work with. And then after that, had the chance to go and build a new unit out at Camp Pendleton, 
First Marine Expeditionary Force, a defense of cyber operations company, Not like a company company, but like a company of, of troops. So I mean, I've been pure cyber in the Marine Corps for the last eight, 10 years, as soon as I had the chance. It's what I wanted to do, it's what fascinated me. And the chance to go and build new things, the CPT, the company, that was that's really what I, all I really want to do. I'm, I like to build. There are builders and maintainers, and neither one is better than the other, but I am the former. Got it. We have a lot in common, Marine Corps, builder. But there's another thing that we have in common that I think we definitely have to touch on during this conversation, and that's purple teaming. I think purple teaming is one of the best things that any security program can do because that's how you get those incremental improvements time and time again. And I mean, I'm talking like even smaller things like purple team games all the way up through these big engagements. How did you first get exposed to purple teaming and and what are some of the tenants that you hold today? Getting into it was basically when we were trying to build methodology for Marfor Cyber and Cybercom on how we do DCO, defensive cyber ops. Didn't know what we were coming up with, trial by error, was purple teaming, but it really was that. And we found out the industry was already doing it and they had a name for it. We said, sweet, we're going to go with it. So that's really where it came to be. And this was maybe like six, eight years ago, probably a little, yeah, right around then, when we were, again, writing doctrine. There was no doctrine for how the military was going to do this stuff. And I mean, I was part of a large group of very much smarter than me people trying to figure this out. That's where we started doing it because we started building our teams around this multifunctional concept of having threat hunters, threat intelligence, red cell, kind of a support and mitigation and forensic cell all in one. All of these capabilities in one team where they could work synergistically. That was kind of the foundation of it and where we and that's where we built from there and put the name to it and realized that this is not something that any organization can necessarily do by building a brand new team. I put it by hiring people specifically to be a purple team. What we realized over the course of doing many missions across the DOD, here, there, and everywhere, was that it was more of a philosophy. The mm-hmm. core tenet of purple teaming is understanding that they mutually support naturally. You just have to get people in the same room to get them to understand what they can do for each other. That's really the top level of it. Let's dissect that a bit. There's a lot that I hear about purple teaming. When I first heard about it, it was from Chris. He was working at Netflix at the time. He was so excited. He was like, I'm going to put together this group of people, some on the offensive, some on the defensive, some on other areas of the organization, and make a team that's going to test our network defenses, test our strategy, test our mindset. And I thought it was powerful. And I hear purple teaming from many different people, and it always sounds a little different. I agree that it's a philosophy. What are some of the shortcomings of thinking about that philosophy? And what are the, some of the biggest advantages that you see? Hard part about adopting a philosophy is this is adopting a philosophy. It's incorporating it into everything you do. <laughs> I mean, it's far easier said than done. But right. at the end of the day, if you just take the notion that what can someone else do for me and what can I do for them who has this, you know, somebody who's in my, I guess, kind of in my tribe, you might say. You know, the security team, the IT team, we're kind of all cut from the same cloth. Uh, We've got things we can do for each other. So, I mean, coming from running various colors of teams for a while, and I can tell you that doing pure red team ops can be super fun, but you leave every job not sure that they're going to actually make something with what you did. That's the nature of being a pure red team. Mm -hmm. I've worked with blue teams who are like, hey, this is a great report red, but we made some fixes, but we don't know if these are good or if it's a trivial workaround for what we did here. That's really the hard part about working in silos, I should say, being siloed that way. That's why we need a philosophy of saying, look, just put our heads together and figure this crap out. It's not rocket surgery. So, but (laughs) again, like I said, philosophy is kind of like rocket surgery, but, you know, I kind of just circled back on myself. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of goes back to that old adage, one team, one fight. And I think the more you can have those communications, those ties between teams, the better things are going to be. Obviously, we've been a partner with Attack IQ for a couple years at this point. And one of the things that I think that is super, super important when you think about things like purple teaming is uh, adversarial emulation, right? So when you're doing that, you're able to real-time test your controls. You're able to test your detection logic. So if somebody was looking at something like APT29, they would be able to say, all right, how would this look on our network? And then how do our controls really map to that? As you're getting deeper into understanding not only the tradecraft of how things are done from a purple team perspective, and then also like really looking at how the threats are evolving, and then also how we are categorizing these attacks, what are some of the things that you've kind of learned along the way from your perspective? So implementing purple teaming, or should I say, you know, doing adversary emulation and threat and form defense, it's almost a broader term that incorporates purple teaming as its primary method of operation. What you learn from that is an actual philosophical, you might say, understanding of an assumed breach mentality. And when I say this, I mean, working with a capability like Attack IQ and doing it right is a means of gaining confidence that you are prepared for things that are relevant to you and the things that you can prepare for. It's a means of taking away the infamous infosec, you know, cybersecurity shrug when they're like, hey, are we protected against this? You can say, yeah, sure. We've proven that we can protect against this threat. And that's great. When I say we get to this philosophical understanding of assumed breach, it's because we're working no matter what with TTPs that have been seen. And we all know that these things change. And I don't care what anybody says, nobody's protecting you against every zero day. Don't care, not gonna happen. So you get this understanding, look, I know that I'm protected against things that have happened in the past and likely several combinations of those things. Now I can spend some time focusing in on some more predictive stuff. You're gaining confidence enough to start looking forward into the future. And that's something that we haven't been able to do for a long time. We've been very reactive. So assuming the threat informed defense means that you accept and fully actualize that breaches are going to happen, but you're building resilience and confidence in the infrastructure and the people that you have and allowing yourself to consider some of the more advanced and risky stuff. I would love to know the aha moment for organizations and teams. You've been on the customer success side. You've been on the professional services side. In my mind, as a security practitioner, there's a million reasons to why you would want to test your defenses. You would want to do some breach and attack simulation. You'd want to implement a threat-informed defense strategy and even some of the zero trust philosophies and strategy as well. Like You want to really use all of these things together. But when it comes to, let's say, the things that we're talking about now, the breach and attack simulation, what is the aha moment that you see for team members that are somewhat on the fence or completely on the fence? I think it's when they see how things can break, not in a breach situation because no one's really having an aha during a breach, they're having an oh crap. It's when they can understand in an environment that doesn't threaten their jobs or their sanity, how everything they've put together can fall apart. And then they're like, oh wow, now I can assess this rationally and I can see the mechanics of be it a single tool, an entire architecture of tools, a logging pipeline, whatever it may be. And they say, now I kind of get it. I can see how fixing these couple of things can interrupt several adversaries over the course of their uh, life cycle in my network. And that really is what we're all looking for as security professionals. It's like you want to understand what the hell's going on so you can do something about it. That's the moment. When I see things from a purple team perspective is when I'm watching the blue team and their detection logic works. You know, they say it oh, works. Yeah. Wow. And it's really special. But if you wait just a little while longer, you start to think like, wait a minute. 
they're excited because it works. Why weren't we able to test it beforehand? Or why is this surprising to us that it works? And it makes me think that why aren't we able to really sure up our detection logic, our signatures? I know we tend to be more reactive than proactive, but what is it about our world that keeps us from getting to that proactivity, to getting to testing, to getting to the purple team spot? It seems like almost a fairy tale for some orgs. So how do we get more people into that land of being able to be more proactive? So I think the sheer volume and variety of threats that changes and increases every day is daunting to a lot of people, but it's kind of unconscious at times. Instead of assuming breach, they're kind of an assuming defeat mentality of like, I can't keep up all of these rules and all of this logic with the way everything is changing because of how they consider the specificity of TTPs once you abstract the procedures that implement them. You know, getting people to consider and get into this is I mean, it's a matter of, I, mean, I would say some of the, a lot of the work that you're seeing happen at MITRE's Center for Threat Informed Defense is doing good work in this realm by providing tooling and content that lays out, again, they'll do some of that more complex, tedious work and give you something that you can get into the game with, like the emulation plan library. Or there are these tools that allow you to look at a report, look at a page, pull out techniques and understand the things that you should be looking at in terms of a threat that you are hopefully researching because it's relevant to you. Giving folks the ability to parse out and understand what's important to them and to boil that down into, okay, now what does that mean when the rubber meets the road, hands on keyboard, making that available, making that easily digestible. That's really, I think, the way to do it. It's an education problem in this realm of a tool for every problem. Security controls fail everywhere. They fail constantly. And worst of all, they fail silently. That's why you need Attack IQ, the leading automated insights platform to continually validate your defenses. Better insights, better decisions, and real security outcomes. Get it all with Attack IQ. Plus, check out the Attack IQ Academy for free cybersecurity training featuring the good people here at Hacker Valley Studio. Register today at academy.attackiq.com and let them know Hacker Valley Studio sent you. If I had my hands on a tool like this, I would want to break everything. That's the hacker in me. I want to like breach and attack everything and simulate it all. But when it comes to the cleanup, the after actions, I think like that's really the hard part is cleaning your room at the end of the day, cleaning up your environment, doing all the things that it takes to build a threat-informed defense. Like you have to not only have that philosophy, but you have to have the execution bit as well. What do you see when it comes to that? I'm, I'm sure you work with a lot of teams, a lot of different organizations. What do you typically see when it comes to after the breach and attack simulation scenarios have been executed? Do teams scramble and start to fix these issues more so immediately, or is there something else to the picture? Well, I mean, analyzing and understanding the results is its own process. And you know, in, in the more mature teams that I see, they're this is happening in parallel with the next battery of tests. The analysis you know, and understanding what you have to do about something is a surface and then there are some depths to it. I mean, on the surface, it's like, okay, so this tool failed, got it. We can fix that. We can figure out why the tool failed to do its job in this specific case, we can fix it. Getting a little deeper into it, what you'll see is that there is branches and sequels at every stage of the adversary lifecycle. When I say that, I mean, the adversary could choose to go in a different direction and you do something kind of different, or they could continue on the path that they're on. 
they could find various other paths to their goals. It's understanding that just because the tool failed at this point, what could happen in the umbra of that specific point in time in the kind of surrounding architecture that would render a fix on this tool kind of useless? That's where you get very mature teams thinking about that. Uh, detection engineers and architecture specialists who are sitting down at the same table and actually saying, okay, so how can we make sure that if this rule doesn't fire, then X, Y, and Z don't happen? And what does it imply about what happened before and where would it be happening in the architecture? It gets into a, very, a pretty complex analysis that requires a lot of experience and time. But again, the cleanup isn't necessarily all of that. Mm-hmm. Finishing up after the test is a matter of saying, have we done something about the problem we found? This is the getting started part. Look, you found a thing, understand why it happened. Again, don't get me wrong, that can be hard, especially if your team isn't fully dedicated to doing this kind of work. You have other things you have to worry about. Fact is, if you're not getting to that point, you haven't paid the ante to play the table. It's a matter of saying, like, look, it's understanding what happened, why it happened from a technical level, and what it means for your workload and your people going forward. I love what you both are getting at because it's something that I've seen teams struggle with in the past is we find all these things. Maybe we do just a red team. Maybe we're doing a purple team. We have these list of things that we now need to get done. We might prioritize them, but then when it comes to do the work, there's a huge question around ownership. Who owns what? Who should be doing what? Is there something that you've seen in the past that works really well when it comes to dividing ownership? When you're looking at things like AWS instances or even certain technologies that have no owner, there's a list of all these things that no one owns. Have you seen anything in the past that works for teams to really figure out who owns what? It comes down to understanding ownership before you even think about testing. I would love to see every organization in the world testing with the tech IQ, but not every organization, even some larger ones, are ready to take that on because there is a morass crossed over and twisted up and interconnecting lines of command, you might say. That's an issue that has to be sorted out before you begin the testing process. And the way I teach this is to sit down with anybody you think could be involved and ask them who they think should be involved. Because when you lay down, like, this is the process we're going to go through, and somebody has to do all of these things, people start wondering, oh, well, this person probably cares, and this person probably cares. Because the worst thing you can do for you know figuring out and getting ownership grabbed is by taking it when it's not yours and when someone else actually is going to get mad at you. That's one of the worst things I've seen happen, uh, because people just start <laughs> testing. <laughs> right. Sometimes that seems a little inevitable. I'll describe why. When I was, you know, very deep into security automation, even when we would try to automate some very simple tasks, people would be very afraid of their production environment. They'd be like, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen if we run this script in this environment. I don't know if what's going to happen if we run too many API calls. And what you're recommending is breaching and attacking, which I'm sure any (laughs) application owner would be very nervous about, especially if that part of their environment is producing that hard, cold cash. What is the sensitivity there from your experience and how do you work around that sensitivity? So there's two types of sensitivity. There's the emotional and then there is the physical, (laughs) I should say. Physical sensitivity is, that's a simple one. We're talking, if if we're talking about something like ICS, you are not slinging anything (laughs) at all past that pop. You're not going into that environment and poking things, at least not yet. Because again, the sensitivity of that is due to various physical limitations and the physical things that can happen from it. The emotional sensitivity is more of a, I don't understand this. I feel like I'm being attacked. I feel like my productivity is going to be interrupted. And addressing that as a matter, again, it's, I hate oversimplifying, but it's just that, look guys, there are things that have to be done. And describing what happens when the things that the cybersecurity team has to do fail 
is usually effective, but all usually it does is scare people off. Mm-hmm. Like, look, watch what happens if you get breached. You end up like Equifax, ta-da, saying that's not going to help. Mm-hmm. Describing, look what happens to your ability to produce if this happens. That's the hardest part. It's the people part. Did I mention that I preferred things over people sometimes? But, um, <laughs> you did. That's kind of where I'm at with that. And it's super important because a lot of times when we do tell these stories in cybersecurity, a lot of folks tend to index on the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, the FUD of <laughs> our community. But I think there are a few ways to really paint what we do and the things that we could do in a much more positive light. For instance, like when we're talking about oh, this is a bad that could happen. You could even say, you know, we'd be able to do X, Y, and Z when we don't have to worry about this. Do you see a lot of folks using a little bit of that negotiation when they go to sell cybersecurity? Because we do have to sell the problem first because people are like, well, why why is this an issue? We have to sell that. And then we have to sell the solution. Have you seen any other folks doing nice tactics when it comes to selling in cybersecurity within the organization? If you're selling to the right technical audience, this stuff's fun. Right. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. Like a platform like ours where it's like known safe and you can see what's going on as, as though they're in an attacker in your environment. I mean, great. Fantastic. Like teams love to be able to do that. Be like, look what I threw at us this time. Look what happened. That was cool. That worked. That worked. That didn't work. But look what we can do about it. And it's like, you know, technical people like technical problems. They can generate problems that they can solve, problems that they pick out. And people love addressing things that they like and they find interesting. I don't know, man. To be honest with you, selling in the environment isn't something that I do. When I think of it, I think of my time in uniform and I was mm-hmm. an absolute dick to vendors. I was not having it. <laughs> right. There were a few who outfoxed me and was like, okay, fine. All right. You know, you're okay, I guess. You still smell bad, but you know, I'll buy your stuff. Oh. Um, <laughs> but here I am now. I've been promoted to vendor. Cybersecurity has become such a kitchen word. I was on a panel with one of my esteemed competitors at DEF CON and he pulled this out. Cybersecurity has become a kitchen word. Bryson, you guys have met him. You can't not sell this stuff to somebody who reads the news and whose job centers around data security or cybersecurity at all. It's like, guys, read the news. Do you want this happening to you? Everything that I've seen is a rehash of that phrase. So let's go ahead and put Chris on the hot seat. Me and Chris, we used to work together. His job was to do the explanation, the storytelling. My job was to go to Chris and be like, hey, let's break everything. And now you got to go convince the other teams. Chris, What would be your bargaining or your negotiation tactics when trying to get my permission to break everything? I would say that things that we're doing in this test, the breaking that we're doing is happening all around us all the time. And I don't say that to strike fear into people's hearts, but it isn't a matter of if, but when. And so in order for us to get there, we have to understand how secure we are. And we understand that there are risks that come in with testing. There are risks that come in with changing things in our environment. There are even risks with changing configurations. But I think it's worth the effort and it's worth the risk in order to make sure that we are moving forward in the maturity of our program. Ben, am I allowed to break everything now? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I don't know. I think communicating with the people who make risk decisions, your C-suite, your VPs, GMs, those types, it's a fair way to go about it, especially in the people who are informed about the problem. But that's not always the case. Right. Not at all. And, you know, considering that there's many people listening, I'm sure, that are in this situation where they understand the severity of a breach. They know it. Their team doesn't, though, and they would like some help. What would be your first piece of advice for the person about to embark on discovering or explaining 
breaches and attack simulation to their organization. So what I definitely wink, wink wouldn't do is walk over to their computer and show them how easy it is to make it do something that it's not supposed to do. (laughs) (laughs) Tell them the keystrokes. You're like, look at that. What if I didn't like you and I didn't like getting paid by this company? Techie to techie. But I've done this a lot. I mean, if I had to say that I had a specialty that forced upon me by the Marine Corps, it was that. It was going over to peers and telling them that this is something that's good, that bringing my red team in and letting them poke around, letting my blue team plug in to their network from some strange IP that they've never seen before is a good thing. And generally speaking, these are people who are on the edge of technology, on the edge of practice, who are like, sure, let's try it, whatever. So that's how the special operations community was. Conventional Marine Corps, some like that. Marines are a little bit crazy at times. Fact is, a lot of people are at the same time very conservative. And I have to explain, like, let's pretend that we're out on the second island chain. We look at three island chains in the Pacific as they approach a certain country that shall not be named in terms of how we understand the strategic battle space. Imagine we're on the second island chain inside the threat radius. Do you want, because you did one simple thing, one innocuous click while you were doing something on the FOB, be able to turn off incoming missile detection? Do you want that to be something that happens? Making it real to somebody in terms of what their job is, what their operational focus is, it is such a madly overused term, but not many people do it right. Right. That's really how I would go about it. It's like, I went and worked with a HIMARS battery once. It's a rocket artillery unit. I said, after 10 minutes, getting a hard look at their systems, I had some of my techs in there. We were able to brief them. We're like, look, we found this and this, and this and this and this could happen. What do you think about that? They're like, oh, my contractor didn't tell me that. Yeah, mm-hmm. your contractor didn't tell you that, did they? Interesting. Are we going to work together? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. A lot of it is simply trying it out, giving them an actual understanding of, of what's possible, not from a doom and gloom standpoint, but from a practicality standpoint. Right. Practical, telling the story, giving the context for them to make a decision and how are they going to move that needle for cybersecurity. Ben, this has been an absolute honor. Thank you for hopping on, chatting about purple teaming, chatting about the Marine Corps and chatting about how do we get people on board when we're trying to do things from a positive perspective for cybersecurity. We're going to drop all your information into the show notes below for anyone that's listening to this. And with that, we will see everyone next time. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee.